The following sermon, entitled The Life of Conversion in Our Relationships, number 23 in the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of July 31st, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. We read God's Word this evening in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we will read the first 15 verses. And though we will not be referring back to this chapter, please note the various parallels to the text for this evening's sermon, which will be Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. So we read in Colossians 3, first of all. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. As far we read from Colossians chapter 3, the text for this evening's sermon is Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. A common method of communicating, whether it be in writing or in speech, is to move from the general to the particular. To explain some broad principle and then to unfold the specifics of it. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here as we move from the previous context to what we have in verses 25 through 32. In the immediate context, we had the general truth, the broad principle, namely the calling to put off the old man and to put on the new. The general truth was the calling to live a life of daily conversion. And now the Apostle Paul transitions to the more specific, the more concrete. He still has a life of conversion in view. And that becomes clear in that we find the same language in verses 25 through 32 that we found in the preceding verses. Paul said there, put off the old man. And now in verses 25 through 32, we will read again and again put off this sin, put off that sin. He's clearly still talking about conversion. What is more, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, still has conversion in view in that he continues the same pattern of giving both the negative prohibition as well as the the positive affirmation. Avoid these sins and instead walk and live this way. The, The negative and the positive put together. So the general truth that we considered last time was the life of conversion. And now we come to the specific application of that in verses 25-32. through And the specific application concerns how we live together. How we treat one another. That, That is, this passage is focused on our relationships with one another. And that's immediately evident from verse 25. Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And the idea of with his neighbor is literally with those who are near to you. And now certainly, this includes anyone and everyone that God places in our path. As Jesus taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the reality is that if we ask who is it that's nearest to us, who's our closest neighbor, the answer is the church. And that is indeed the primary application here as the end of verse 25 makes clear when it says, for we are members one of another. It's using the the illustration, the figure of the church as the body of Christ saying, that it's especially our relationships with one another in this congregation that this passage pertains to. And that by extension includes, therefore, our relationships to one another in our homes and our families. Because if we ask who's nearest to us in the sense of who do we live with and interact with most closely, it's our spouse. It's our parents. It's our children. It's our siblings. So what's in view here 
is a life of daily conversion as it pertains to our relationships. This is the first specific that the Apostle Paul will explain and unfold as he elaborates on a life of conversion. Which is quite striking when you stop to think about it. Been just told us to avoid walking like the rest of the world, to put on the new man, to put off the old man. And if we ask, well, what does that look like? The answer is not, you all must go and perform some mission trip to some remote land where no one's ever been. The specific is not, you need to read your Bible three hours a day and spend that much time in prayer. The application is not, go sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. But it has to do with communicating with one another. It has to do with the attitude of our hearts toward one another and caring for each other in the body of Christ. That is, the instruction for us here concerns how we use our tongues. What goes on in our hearts and how we use our hands right here in this congregation and in our homes. So this evening we look at Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, using as our theme a life of conversion in our relationships. A life of conversion in our relationship. And this involves loving with our tongues, first of all, second, loving in our hearts, and third, loving by our hands. First, we must love with our tongues. Scripture everywhere emphasizes the importance of how we use our tongues, our mouths, what we say. For example, in Psalm 141, verse 3, the psalmist prays, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. In harmony with that, the wise King Solomon warned in Proverbs 10, verse 19, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. And perhaps the strongest statement concerning our tongues comes in James 3. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. There's an emphasis in Scripture on how we use our tongues. And we see that here. That's the, the focus, the main thing that's brought up in verses 25 through 32. 25, wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man the truth. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good. Verse 31 tells us to put away clamor and evil speaking. So tonight we begin by examining how we use our tongues, what we say. Are we setting a watch before our mouths? Are we refraining our lips? Or is our speech really no different than the speech of the wicked world around us? If we're going to use our tongues in a God-glorifying manner, it means we must heed this word in front of us, which as we 
mentioned in the introduction has both a negative and a positive. Let's start with the negative. And there are three aspects to the negative. First, we must put away lying. Verse 25, wherefore, putting away lying. There must be no lying to try to get our way, to get what we want. Even as Jacob, with the help of his mother Rebekah, lied to his father. There must be no lying to try to get out of something bad. To avoid some consequences the way that Joseph's brothers lied to their father about what had happened to Joseph. There must be no lying to promote ourselves, to try to make others think highly of us like Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much money they got for their land. Put away lying, says the text. Whether it's a, an outright lie, a white lie, a, a half-truth, always exaggerating, withholding part of the truth. Put away any and all forms of lying. No more deceit about where you were. No more deceit about who you were with. No more deceit about what you were doing. And that's so crucially important because if we're going to have healthy relationships in the church, in the home, there cannot be any lying because the lie does unimaginable damage to that trust that is so crucial in our homes and so crucial in the life of the church. So from a negative point of view, first of all, put away lying. Second, put away corrupt communication. That's verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And when the Apostle Paul by inspiration uses that word corrupt, he's using a term from horticulture. This is the word that's applied to some fruit or vegetable that's rotten or putrid. It's corrupt so that we can think of some produce that's covered with mold that's mush and is stinking. The Apostle Paul is saying, let no putrid, rotten communication come out of your mouth. Put away that speech that is covered with contempt. That stinks of spite. Put away those hurtful and hateful words that sometimes arise out of our mouths. Because the reality is that when we speak to one another in that way, when we use that type of speech with one another, it's really more hurtful. It really does more damage than if we took an actual piece of rotten fruit and threw it at a family member or threw it at a member in the church. Our words hurt worse. So put away corrupt communication. And third, put away clamor and evil speaking. That's verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Clamor here refers to the noise associated with 
the shouting back and forth of those who are quarreling with one another. When it says put away clamor, it's saying put away fighting. Put away the, the bickering that sometimes goes on. And put away everything that goes along with that. Put away the, the dirty looks. The hateful tone of voice. Do not let that come out of your mouth. Do not let that be what's on your face. And put away evil speaking, it adds. And the idea of evil speaking here is speech that brings another person down, that does damage to somebody else's reputation. So that if we are speaking with one another and what we have to say about another causes the person to whom we're speaking to have a a low view of that person so that it's all negative, so that we're bringing that person down, then we are guilty of evil speaking. Parents, put away evil speaking about your spouse, especially in front of your children. Do not teach them a low view of their other parent. Members of the congregation, put away evil speaking concerning the other members of the body. That is the negative aspect of this life of daily conversion that we're called to with respect to our relationships with another. Put away all sinful forms of speech. But now as we saw last week when we looked at a life of conversion, it's never enough just to try to put away the negative. We must replace it with the positive. And so there's positive instruction for us here too. The positive on the one hand, is to speak the truth. That's verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. This is the best way to put away the lie. It's to to fill our speech with truth so that everything that comes out of our mouths is in accord with reality. The calling here is to be honest in our speech. Now implied in that is that we do in fact communicate with each other. The main thing here is speak the truth, but let's not forget the word speak. Especially in our marriages. There needs to be open communication. And now this does not mean that we have to share every last little thing in our hearts and in our lives with other members of the church or even necessarily with our spouse. But that said, I think the greater danger for us is that we are too closed up, especially in our marriages, that there's not the open communication that there ought to be. Speak the truth implies, first of all, speak, communicate with one another. So we must be open and honest. That first of all, speaking the truth. Second, the positive includes speaking that which is good, edifying, and gracious. Good, edifying, and gracious. And we say that in light of the positive half of verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. There's the negative. But that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers, that which is good. Good in God's own eyes. That which is 
pleasing to Him. Let that be what comes out of our mouths. Rather than using our words to tear others down, our words should build one another up. We say that in light of that language there, but that which is good to the use of edifying. The idea of edifying is you're, you're building someone up. You're encouraging him. And it says the, the use of edifying. Literally, in the original, it's the edification of necessity. And the point of the language is that when there's some specific, concrete need, we help one another. So that if a member in the body of Christ is struggling, if our spouse is having a hard time with something, we're there to use our words to encourage. Or to use the language of the rest of the verse that we may give Wrong verse. That we may that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Our words should be words that that give grace that God Himself can use to strengthen the others in the body of Christ or in our home. Let your words be good, edifying, and gracious. That's the positive calling. of a life of daily conversion with respect to our relationships. So we've seen the negative. We've seen the positive. But we must not fail to miss the why. Why are we to live this way? From a most general point of view, out of gratitude for the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the broad context. These imperatives that we're considering in this second half of the epistle are built on the first half. All the indicatives in the, the Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we, when we come to the second half, it's not as though we say, well, we can forget the first half and it's all application. No, we have to hang on to the first half. We have to hang on to the, the thankfulness that flowed from our hearts when we considered the, the riches of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. That's what motivates us. And really, that's what empowers us to live according to this Word. It's thankfulness for our salvation. And now think about that salvation in terms of what we've just said. By nature, apart from God's grace, we belong to a different kingdom. A kingdom of darkness where the ruler of that kingdom, the head of that kingdom, was the father of the lie. The devil himself. But we've been brought out of that kingdom and made citizens of a new kingdom. A kingdom of light. A kingdom of love. Where the King is truth itself. Jesus Christ. If that's true, and it is, then why would we still let our speech be characterized by the lie and deceit and falsehood and hatred? Shall we not speak the truth out of honor for the King who is truth? You see, it's knowing who we are in Christ. It's knowing what He's done on our behalf. What He's working in us. 
gives us the motivation and the power to heed this word. Put away all that sinful, all those sinful forms of speech. And instead, use your tongues in a loving and gracious way. Another reason is simply drawing from the context. There's more here than just what we've already gone over. But throughout this, this passage is punctuated, as it were, with further encouragement, further reasons why we are to heed this Word. First of all, we see that in verse 25. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. For, here's a reason to heed this Word. For we are members one of another. And as we said in the introduction, it's clearly calling to our minds the illustration we've seen again and again of the church as the body of Christ. Each of us has been united to our head, and thus we are united to one another. And that's emphasized here in this verse. The, the bond we now share. Notice the language is not for we are members of the body of Christ, that we all share the same head, but we are members one of another. It's emphasizing the, the, the bond that we now have together. And if we've been joined together for members one of another, why would we use our speech, our tongues, to bring each other down? It makes no sense at all. Especially when you consider that the Christian life is already hard enough as it is. Christian life has enough difficulties, enough hardships, enough trials. And as those who've been joined together, members one of another, how foolish to be a source of discouragement to each other. To use our tongues to only make that burden harder and greater when it ought to be that we recognize we're all in this together and we're going to encourage each other. We're going to build each other up whether that's in our homes and in our families or whether it's as a congregation. Part of the reason to heed this word is because we are members one of another. But now there's an additional reason here too. And that's found in verse 30. Verse 30, just after, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto hearers. And now that's connected to verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. To grieve the Spirit is to pain the Spirit on account of our willful disobedience to His, to God's commandments. Now the Spirit can be grieved because He is a real person, you know. He's not just some force. He's not just some power. But He's the third person of the Trinity. And He has been so good to us. And that He's not only regenerated us, 
but He dwells in our hearts. He sanctifies us. He illuminates our hearts and minds. He reforms our will and our affections. And as verse 30 reminds us, He seals us under the day of redemption. That's His work. And when we willfully go against God's commandments, when we willfully walk in sin, really what we're doing is we are opposing His work. We're resisting His work. And that grieves Him. Especially because that sin is entirely contrary not only to the work of grace that He's performing in our hearts and lives, but it's contrary to to Him. To who He is as God. Because remember, He's the Holy Spirit. And for us to let corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth is entirely contrary to who He is. He's the Spirit of truth. And thus we're opposing His very character, His very being when we speak the lie. He's the Spirit of adoption who who makes us the sons and daughters of God and thus we're opposing Him when we walk as the children of disobedience. The point is we've been given the Spirit. And therefore, we are to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Because when we walk after the flesh, that's a grief to the Spirit. We've been given a tremendous gift in having the Spirit come to live and to dwell within us and we're to bear that in mind. Especially when we consider what it took for us to be given that gift. Jesus Christ died at Calvary in part so that we might have the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ Himself to come and to live within us and to give us new life. And it's knowing that that's further encouragement, a further reason to heed this Word. So we are to love one another with our tongues. That love that flows from our mouths will only be there if it's rooted in our hearts. And that's what we want to look at secondly. Loving in our hearts. And Scripture itself makes this connection between the two in Matthew 12, verses 34-35. through For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So we're to love in our hearts. And again, we have a, a negative and a positive. From a negative point of view, first of all, the calling is to put away all anger. Verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And now, in light of the specific wording, I should have said, we're to put away all sinful anger 
And we have to add that word sinful because of that opening statement. Be ye angry and sin not. What that language is teaching us is that there is a righteous anger. An anger that's appropriate. And we see that, for example, when we look at Jesus Christ Himself. When He cleansed the temple, for example, that was a display of righteous anger. And it's looking at Christ that helps us to discern the difference between a sinful anger and a righteous anger. A righteous anger is concerned about God. His name. His reputation. That is, it's concerned about His glory, His power, and His kingdom. Whereas a sinful anger is it's concerned only about myself. My kingdom, my power, and my glory. So knowing the difference, we have to we do well to heed this first part of the verse. Be angry. That is, from a certain point of view, we must cultivate a righteous anger in our hearts. And I say that because probably for most of us, there is a a lack of concern about God's name and His glory so that when it is, when His name is dragged through the mud, we are not nearly as upset as we ought to be. Be angry, says the Spirit through the Apostle to us. But then he does immediately add, and sin not. Really, he, he qualifies the be angry with three different statements, all of which point us to the reality of a, a sinful form of anger. Be ye angry. And then he adds, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And then neither give place to the devil. First, and sin not. Because there are sinful forms of anger. Which means, if we feel that anger arising in our hearts, we need to wrestle with the question, that God put to Jonah. Doest thou well to be angry, Jonah? Is this anger in your heart just and right? Or is it just because you did not get what you wanted? Is it just because things did not go your way? Is it because there was some sort of attack on your kingdom, your power, and your glory? Be angry and sin not. Do not be guilty of a sinful form of anger. The Apostle then adds, and let not the, sin, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That is, do not go to bed angry. Do not go to sleep at night with your heart filled with wrath toward your spouse or toward a member in the church. Because what happens when we go to bed angry is that that anger hardens. It degenerates into resentment and bitterness. And though it may have taken on a different form and shape by morning, you can be certain it will still be there. And thus, We must address whatever was the occasion for the conflict. We must seek resolution and reconciliation. Do not go to bed angry. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. 
And third, the Apostle says by inspiration, neither give any place to the devil. Because the devil knows how to use anger for his own purposes. He knows how to use it to sow discord. He knows how to use it to make us unwilling to forgive. And thus, the instruction of the text is give no place to the devil. Do not let his... Do not let him get his foot into the door of your heart. Do not give him an inch. No place at all. Do not give him anything to work with. Therefore, address that sinful anger. Put it off. Put it away. That first of all is the negative part of a life of daily conversion in our hearts with respect to the neighbor. But now there's more from a negative point of view because second, we are to put away malice. And that's verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And I single out malice because the text itself does. The text itself puts malice at the end so that malice is sort of the umbrella term here. Malice is the genus. And the first five things mentioned are the the different species that fall under that genus that is malice. So what is malice? Malice is ill will. It's the desire to hurt the neighbor. And therefore, it's the exact opposite of love because love desires the neighbor's good. Love desires the neighbor's welfare. Malice wants to bring harm. And therefore, we're called to put away malice. And that includes putting away every different form, every different expression of malice as they're listed here in this passage. It includes putting away bitterness, first of all. Bitterness is that resentment that swells within our hearts so that when we look at somebody Every little thing they do wrong is, is further confirmation that that person is worthless. That person is not worth being around. Resentment is what causes us to view someone in such a way that he or she could not possibly do anything right. From our perspective, everything they do is all wrong. We have a, a negative attitude toward them. It's a part of malice. And it leads to other forms because What's put next is let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you. And now we're going to have two words that are close synonyms. Wrath and anger. The first word, wrath, has has the idea of that anger that boils up within us. may not be there all the time, but it grows to the point where it comes to expression in that dirty look. Those resentful words. And it may reside, but... And it boils up again later on. Put away that anger. And you see, that anger flows from the bitterness. Because if we allow bitterness to fester in our hearts and lives, it's going to grow. It's going to swell. And it's eventually going to to boil over into this anger that the text mentions next. But then it continues. But all bitterness and wrath and now... Sorry, I should have been saying wrath just now to be consistent with 
the King James. So we just spoke of wrath, and then it adds anger. And the idea of anger here is a, a more prolonged anger that includes an appetite for revenge. This anger is the anger that does not fade away. It's a disposition of the heart. And it's ever looking to lash out. And again, there's a progression here so that bitterness leads to wrath. Wrath leads to anger. So that whereas the wrath is these explosions of anger, this boiling over of anger, if we don't address that, it's going to become... We're going to boil over more and more often. And it's going to last longer and longer until we get to this anger that's mentioned in this passage. That's a prolonged anger that includes that desire for revenge. And if left unchecked, that leads to the clamor and evil speaking. We already explained those terms in the first point, but here again we see the progression of the heart sins coming to expression in our mouths and in the way that we live our lives. Put away malice. And now as we consider this negative, putting away anger, putting away malice, we must not fail to make this concrete. Who is it that you are most often angry at? Who are the people about whom you think, I cannot stand him. I cannot stand her. Do you have someone in mind? Perhaps a couple people come to mind? Whether it's one, two, or many. The calling of the text is put away the anger and the malice toward Him. Toward her. Toward them. Not the people you have no problem getting along with that may occasionally offend you, but the people you find it most difficult to get along with. Put away the anger and the malice toward them. And replace it with a positive. And the positive is first of all to be kind and tender-hearted. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil... That's the negative. Verse 32 rather. And be ye kind one to another. tender Hearted, be kind, benevolent, gentle. And the idea of this kindness is that it, it represses anger. It, it keeps back that desire to do harm. So that kindness is the virtue of, that enables us to turn the other cheek. Kindness is the virtue that enables us to be wrong without responding in kind. So be kind. And then it adds, be tender-hearted. 
compassionate, merciful. And the idea here is that we sympathize with others, that we grieve with those who are grieving. And we're so moved by their struggles, their trouble, that we want to help them in whatever way that we can. So if we want to distinguish kindness and tenderheartedness, kindness is what keeps us from doing harm to others. Tenderheartedness is what spurs us on to do good, to benefit, to help the other. Put that in terms of when maybe somebody's doing us wrong, when we are being sinned against, when somebody's being a jerk to us. Kindness is what keeps us from lashing out at them. Tenderheartedness goes a step further and says, if so-and-so is acting this way, it's probably, probably for a reason. There must be some hurt, some pain in his heart and life that is the occasion for him to act this way. How can I help? What's going on in your heart and life? Be kind and tender-hearted. And that will arise in your heart as you consider the heart of your Savior toward you. Meditate for a moment on His tender heart. His compassion. His mercy. Who as the Lord of Heaven was willing to come down into this world to take upon Himself a weakened human nature. To suffer all of His life long in pursuit of poor and needy sinners. Consider His tender heart in being willing to take upon Himself our sinfulness and to go to the cross to die for our sin. And consider the heart of our God. His long-suffering, His patience, His goodness, His love, His grace. Because it's only when we are thinking about what's in the heart of our Savior and what's in the heart of our God toward us that we will ever be kind and tender-hearted toward one another. So be kind and tender-hearted. That first of all is the positive. But now, perhaps most importantly, the positive includes that we forgive. That's the end of verse 32. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And this is so crucially important, perhaps the most important part of this whole sermon. Because we're all sinners in our homes and in the congregation, every last one of us is a sinner who still has that old man who's still struggling to put off that old man. We are going to be wronged. And we need to expect it really. Now what are we to do when we are wronged? Forgive. 
And maybe that forgiveness takes the form of simply passing over the transgression or covering the fault so that even if there is no confession of sin, I'm able to have an attitude of forgiveness that says, I'm not going to interact with that. I, I know this person prays for forgiveness of their secret sins and knowing that I've been forgiven, I'm going to forgive even though they've never confessed that wrong to me. Or maybe the sin is so great that a confession of sin does need to take place. And maybe that confession comes without any sort of prompting. Maybe we need to point out the wrong that was committed against us. When that confession is given, we are to forgive. And remember what that means. When we say, I forgive you, we are promising, I'm not going to dwell on this incident. I'm not going to keep thinking about it. I'm not going to bring it up to you again. Use this as ammunition later on. I'm not going to tell others and gossip about your sin. And most importantly, I'm not going to allow this to affect our relationship, to hinder our relationship moving forward. That's what it means to forgive. And we have every reason to do so. Because God has forgiven us. Verse 32, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Of course, the Apostle Paul inserts for Christ's sake. Because it's only on the basis of His atoning death. It's only on account of His perfect sacrifice that God releases us from the responsibility to pay the debt that we owe. But because of that sacrifice of Christ, God declares to us, I forgive you. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to bring it up again on judgment day and hold it against you. I'm not going to go telling others about it. And most importantly, I'm not going to allow this to affect my relationship with you. It's not going to be a wedge. It's not going to be that dark cloud that hides the brightness of my countenance. That's what God declares to us when He forgives us for Jesus' sake. And it's when we know that forgiveness by faith that we are then ready and willing to forgive one another. Especially when we consider how much greater the debt was that we owed to God. Think about that parable of the, the unforgiving servant. The servant owed the one servant owed to the other a, a debt of 100 pence, 100 denarii. Whereas the first servant owed a debt to the Lord of 10,000 talents. If you do the, the math, the calculations, that's 60 million pence. 60 million pence versus 100 pence. And even that is, even that does not do justice to how much greater was the debt that we owed. Because on account of our sin, we owe an infinite debt to our God. And yet He says, I forgive you. Will we not forgive one another? 
And will we not forgive one another when we consider how many times He's forgiven us? Think of what Peter said to Jesus Christ. Shall I forgive my brother seven times? And Peter thought seven would be an awful lot. And the response of our Savior is you will forgive 70 times seven. And the point was not you may stop at 490. But the point was you keep on forgiving again and again because that's how God has forgiven us. We sin again and again and again. And we must confess that sin again and again and again. And God forgives us again and again and again. He doesn't stop at 490. He keeps going. And so we are to forgive each other that way. It does not matter that your spouse has committed that same sin against you a hundred times over. God has forgiven us thousands, millions of times over. So too, we are to keep forgiving one another. It's a part of a life of daily conversion in our relationships. A life that includes loving one another with our tongues, loving one another in our hearts, and also loving one another by our hands. And here we bring in verse 28 very briefly. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. The negative is obvious. No more stealing, says the Apostle Paul by inspiration. And it's clear he has in view all forms of stealing and probably especially the more subtle forms that perhaps some members of the congregation in Ephesus had that had characterized their past life and there was a temptation for them to go back to that. Steal no more because that's an expression of sinful self-love and it's an expression of hatred toward the neighbor. So the negative is do not steal. But then the positive is rather let him labor. Working with his hands the thing which is good that he may give, that he may have to give to him that needeth. First, labor. The idea here is that we're to earn a living through honest labor. The Apostle Paul himself was an example of this. When he visited with the elders of the church at Ephesus on his return to Jerusalem, he was able to say to them, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Now Paul is calling them to do the same. Work diligently. Work honestly. And whatever occupation and whatever calling God has given to you so that you might provide for your family. And you see, it's the, the honest labor that is the remedy for the stealing. Because when we earn a living the way God would have us to earn a living, that removes the temptation to steal it. It takes away the time, the idle time we would otherwise have to perhaps pursue those sinful forms of acquiring our neighbor's goods. But it's more than just labor diligently. It's labor diligently with a view to helping the neighbor. 
let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. And here we see the idea of loving with our hands. And that we're called to to work hard so that we have not only enough for ourselves, but enough to give to the poor, enough to give to the needy who are unable to make ends meet. Now this does... This word does come especially to the men of the congregation. Say that in light of our marriage form, which includes as one of three overarching headings as callings of the husbands, this, quote, you are to labor diligently and faithfully in the calling wherein God has set you, that you may maintain your household honestly and likewise have something to give to the poor, end quote. So a special word for the men, but it's broader than that. Because the application here is not limited to putting some money in the collection plate. But by giving us one specific, what's clearly in view is the general truth of giving of our time, our energy, our abilities, our resources out of love for the neighbor. And that does come to all of us. So we're to love by our hands as a part of a life of daily conversion in our relationships. And we will do that only when we consider what God has given for us and that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him to be born of a woman, to be made under the law. And when it came time to sacrifice Him, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up to the death of the cross for His people. And it's on the basis of that work that He continues to give. Because as we've seen throughout this series, He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The whole first half of the book, especially chapter 1, verses 1-14, through was all about the unspeakable riches that God showers, that He lavishes upon His people. He's given to us. Shall we not give to one another out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for what God has given to us. May He grant us the grace to do just that and to live according to all of this instruction concerning a life of daily conversion in our relationships. Amen. Father in Heaven, Thou hast shown such tremendous love to us. Fill our hearts with gratitude for it. And give us the grace by the power of Thy Spirit to now love one another. To love our fellow church members. To love our family. And to love anyone whom Thou dost place in our lives. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.